0: Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here. That's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Louis Leo, founder of L2 Council. L2 Council provides practical and commercial deal lawyers for disruptive founders and their investors. L2 is focused on legal strategies and solutions that make sense. Which is really important when you're getting into some complex deals. Lou is a veteran of M and A transactions, representing the who's who in Silicon Valley. Last month, I had the pleasure of joining Lou on a panel for structuring IP and technology acquisitions. So I asked Lou to join me today and share his perspective and predictions. And I'm real excited to have him here this afternoon. Lou it's a pleasure having you. Welcome aboard, Patrick. Thank you so much for uh, letting me join
1: and 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 uh, speak to your audience. Um, Uh, I'm a Silicon Valley lawyer. I've been practicing for 20 years, and I I love to help uh, founders, uh, management teams, and investors uh, plan really smart exits uh, according to the theme of of, of the situation, and, and I have so much fun in, in what I do. Uh, I have a great team of uh, lawyers uh, in my firm called L2 Counsel and, and an extended network of, of other lawyers that I bring in according to the circumstances. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, like most of your listeners, I've been uh, sheltering in place and working from home and trying to find ways to stay connected uh, with people. And, and Patrick, I was just so grateful that you joined me in my webinar a couple of weeks ago on how to structure uh, IP and technology acquisitions. And uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to your audience about you know, what I've learned along my journey and uh, how I can help.
0: Yeah. And Lou, before we get into the IP issues, because this is not just limited technology companies, it's, it's essentially everybody now and we can get into that. But let's back up before we get into L2 Council and M&A. Uh, tell us about yourself real quick. What brought you to this point in your career?
1: Oh, thank you, Patrick. Uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, but in the East Bay, uh, in the hills above uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, I watched my uh, father, who was a PhD in computer science, uh, go from entrepreneurial venture to venture. And I I caught the startup bug uh, when I was at a very young age. Um, I went off to uh, college and law school on the East Coast, and uh, found myself in in Europe helping multinational corporations access the the U.S. capital markets. And uh, after I met my French wife and had two kids, uh, you know, she had the smart idea that uh, we should move back to California, and uh, we came back in two thousand and five, and have been here ever since. Recently, I was running DLA Piper's uh, Northern California operations, and their uh, co-leading their venture capital team, and uh, I stepped away in October of last year, and and took some time off, and came back to the market uh, just as COVID was shutting us down, with uh, a new market offering to to fill what I see as a gap uh, in in uh, in service where you know young founders uh, in the earlier stages of their startup and when they go to exit have the most and the greatest need for legal services, and those are the times when they have the least amount of cash. And so calling up a, a lawyer who might have some giant, uh, hourly rate, uh, is a big impediment to, you know, forming that relationship and growing it. And so in my new structure, I'm, I'm trying to find creative ways of, uh, making sure that I can build long-term relationships, uh, with founders and management teams and investors that are not based on that not based on the billable hour, uh, or, or um, with built-in disincentives for us to to build our relationship. So um that's what we're doing Patrick and and we're really having a great time. I, I think at the at the outset of of covid uh we we all tried to get the deals done that we had in process and and as of this recording uh July 10 um you know we're starting to see brand new deals uh we're you know, buyers and sellers have not actually met each other, uh, and who have uh, built enough of a relationship uh, over Zoom and and email and phone calls and video calls that that they're launching transactions uh, to create inorganic growth, and and I'm really excited about that uh, development, and I, I think it bodes well for the rest of the year.
0: Well, I I share your uh, your view and your optimism on that. I I also have been noticing how necessity has become the mother of invention and when it was unthinkable of doing an m a deal unless the parties were in a in a room physically together to be able to look each other in the eye and see the whites of their eyes and you know get up all the body language and everything sometimes that's just not possible and i i've seen like you not as many but a few of these things moving forward uh first of all let's just talk about technology because you know, technology 10 years ago was thought of as, well, those are the Silicon Valley, those are the hardware software companies, okay? Today, every company is a technology company, okay? Whether you are a manufacturer or a restaurant chain, you're, you're deploying and, and utilizing some kind of intellectual property. Talk to us about that and what, are, what the perspective is on the challenges for these companies that may not think they're uh, IP-intensive. Uh, and, and how things have changed in the last 10 years? Uh,
1: that's, a, that's a great question. And when I started out in, in Silicon Valley, I think there was an idea that really our, our companies were, were built on, on the back of, of two things. One was the idea and two were the, the people that knew how to implement the idea. So it's technology and people. And uh, the way we did transactions was really designed to grow the technology and, and bring along the people that were essential to the technology. And we viewed it as, as very much a wave of growth that started here in Silicon Valley and, and would would go eastward until it went abroad. And I guess the biggest development of the last 20 years, I would say, is that when I see a, and meet a new company now, it's just as likely that that company uh, will achieve its first dollar of revenue outside the U.S. as inside the U.S. It's just as likely as that its uh, intellectual property will be developed in, in another part of the world as as it as it will here and i guess i believe that the key to success for all of these businesses is is that they plot a strategy for the development of their intellectual property from inception and that they identify what it is and patrick you know i think the the greatest development of the last year is the realization that uh, the data that is created or uh, harvested uh, by the the technology company uh, is also part of that portfolio that that needs to be addressed from inception. You know, how can you harvest the data? How can you create the data? How can you protect the data? Uh, how can you keep it private? How can you keep it secure? And, and so, when I work with early stage founders, uh, and, and especially when I help bring them to exit, really telling the story of what that is, is, is often the most compelling thing about, about the uh, reason why a buyer wants to buy them. Uh, what then, as you move into the execution of the transaction, you've got to anticipate, you know, what a buyer is going to be looking at, uh, to determine that they're getting the full value and, and that they're mitigating any potential risks. And so it used to be that buyers would, you know, focus on a, um, uh, freedom of operation uh, analysis to make sure that there was a sufficiency of patents and that the patents didn't infringe anybody else's patents. And today, um, you know, many companies never get patents. Uh, their their business uh, is really based on trade secrets. It, it's it's based on computer code that that. They would never want to write a patent for it just because of the time and expense, and and, and that it would render it public. And, and then you know they obviously have uh, so some of their greatest assets uh, that that they harvest from their trade secreted uh, software code is is data. And so I don't care whether you're making uh, masks or or machines, um, you know there there's data that's flowing through your supply chain and your customer chain and and your, the ecosystem that. Your product lives in, and you know, harvesting that and monetizing it is the challenge of our time.
0: Let's when you when you have a client there and they're looking for an exit. Okay, let's talk about the structures that you know. Very simply, what kind of structures are available out there for for these companies?
1: Um, great question. And, and um, you know, when you're looking to sell your business as a seller, you would like the buyer to take the entity so that you have no further ties or obligations. Uh, those become the buyer's ties and obligations. And so you're looking to either do your transaction through a merger, which is the easiest way to sell your company because it doesn't require 100% of the shareholders to sell their, each and every one of their shares each of the state laws allows a merger as long as a majority of the, the outstanding shares of capital stock approve it. And some states have some additional requirements, that it, such as in California, that each class of shares separately votes on that. But uh, a merger or a share purchase is really in the best interest of, of the seller. It also guarantees the seller that they know what the tax treatment is going to be on the sale, which is simply going to be a hopefully a long-term capital gain with the purchase price that they receive minus the price that they paid per share, which if you're a founder is hopefully a peppercorn and all of that is long-term capital gains. Uh, Now, uh, a buyer uh, is going to look at several other ways to structure an acquisition. First, uh, and this doesn't always come to mind, but uh, if you're a buyer merely looking to get access to technology, um, a license uh, is a really great way to go, uh, as it doesn't uh, give you the requirement to maintain the intellectual property. uh, It doesn't make you liable for any breaches of those patents by uh, somebody else or or breaches by those patents of somebody else 's patents. Uh, it doesn't give you any of the historical liabilities for failure to pay payroll tax or or any of that. So a license is really an easy way to go for for uh, a buyer. Now they're going to want exclusivity of, of of the intellectual property, and and so um, and they'll want the ability to develop it, grow it, and so acquiring the IP through an asset acquisition is often uh, something that the buyer wants, really just to control it uh, better and to to better monetize it um, so an asset acquisition is is, uh, is another way that buyers look to to do transactions for IP
0: I just want to break in here real quick okay in light of the the economic climate out there where you've got a lot of companies that are struggling uh, do you sense that they're going to be a lot more attention on uh, uh, opportunistic buyers to really push the asset acquisition as opposed to either allowing a merger if they can't get a license Absolutely, uh,
1: you know, I, I think that um, buyers are going to be looking to opportunistically uh, supplement their own portfolio of products in an asset acquisition, and then and then the recruitment of the people that know how to monetize the IP is is often the most protective way for a buyer to acquire a business. It's an asset acquisition, leave behind all the liabilities, leave behind the entity. Leave behind the employees and w- and whatever liabilities that that, they, that that may have occurred, and then directly recruit the uh, employees that they want, cherry picking them on a person by person basis.
0: Grabbing the talent,
1: the yeah. and why that's not the best thing for sellers is that. Typically, the the company will have to pay tax on the the difference between book value of the assets that were sold and and the amount of proceeds that they receive. And then when they dividend out those proceeds to the shareholders, the shareholders then pay a second level of tax. So um, whereas in a merger, you could have, if you're in the state of California, 33% tax. uh, If you're selling your assets, you could pay a a flat 20% corporate tax. And then the individual of of thirty five percent in California, uh, the thirteen percent on top, and suddenly you uh, know that's that's over a vast majority of the transaction proceeds are going down to Uncle Sam, uh, and, and so um, not the best uh, outcome for for sellers. I would say the other risk for sellers in an asset acquisition is that the buyer has the right to, uh, unless you you contract around it, the buyer will get to attribute basis on an asset by by as, asset. Um, uh, basis, and, and you know, you you as the seller could get hit with the wrong tax treatment on on a specific asset. And so, for example, you know, big risk is is if. Uh, there, there's a, a lot of basis that the buyer attaches to some sort of a non-compete or, or intangible asset that you don't have basis in. And suddenly you as the seller are paying all this extra tax on top of what I already described. So uh, if you are a seller doing an asset deal because you have no other way of doing it, you really need good counsel and and really strong accounting uh, to make sure that the deal is what you think it is um, and, and that you minimize the, the damage.
0: I would say that you know, another way the seller can try to negotiate and, and you know, engaging a, a solid attorney that's done these deals before is, you know, the number one reason why a buyer doesn't want to buy, uh, buy the company and everything is because they don't want to assume any or pick up any of the liabilities that might be there that they don't know about. Okay, either IP, yeah. HR, legal, things that the buyer didn't know about, even though they performed due diligence, you know, they're on the hook. Just as if that target company committed them uh, post close, and so there is a de- there is a way to uh, transfer that risk away from the buyer, and that 's with rep and warranty insurance
1: yeah, you know that's a great point rep and warranty insurance has been really a revolution in in uh how we do deals and it, it's you know I think it's in the interest of buyers and sellers to externalize the risk of of breaches of reps and warranties uh, with insurance, and it really takes the sting out of. Uh, and the friction out of an ongoing relationship between a buyer and buyer's new employees who are helping the buyer monetize the IP, and you're really going back to those employees and dinging them for 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 you know indemnification claims is really the last thing you want to be doing. And the the easiest way to de incentivize them and demotivate them from from doing what they need to do. But you know, Patrick, there's something I wanted to tell you about representing. Uh, startup companies and, and growth companies as they come to the market for sale. And that's that they're all so special. They all come with their own history and, and uh, relationships and and problems. And so what what I do as counsel to, to sellers is I come to them and I, I schedule a three-hour meeting and I go through my 20-page checklist that I'm constantly updating of every question that I can think of that will impact how to do the deal. And so I'll give you an example. A lot of founders will have family members in the company. And if you don't ask the question, you won't find this out until the day after the closing when the founder calls you you know that his daughter's crying that she lost her job. Um, and so if you don't, you know, anticipate those issues at the outset, you know, you can have a bad surprise. You know, another, another one I've seen multiple times is, uh, the, the founder of the business also owns the, the, the facility and has a, an arm's length, uh, or, or some, uh, rental agreement between the company and, uh, her or his family trust that owns the, uh, the property. And, yeah. you know, if you don't anticipate that you can have issues, um. Trusts and estates. Um, When you're really uh, in the money uh, on your business and you go to sell it and it's your life's biggest asset... You really want to be thoughtful as early as you can about about taking advantage of trusts and estate and you know family planning vehicles, so that you know you can put the money in, in the places that um, will best uh, benefit you know your you and your stakeholders. Um, and I could go on and on, but you know I've got this twenty page checklist, uh, Patrick, that that I that I really need to spend a lot of time with my clients on to understand what are the issues and how we can best um, structure deals. As we look forward to the rest of the year, Patrick, I am seeing a lot of early-stage companies running on fumes, running out of cash, running out of runway, and and they're going to be faced with a tough decision, uh, whether they empty more of their personal savings into the company or whether they bring it around for sale. And, And uh, and, and some of those companies will, you know, will fail and they'll end up either in a Chapter 7 or 11 uh, bankruptcy proceeding if there's uh, sufficient business that it merits uh, the expense of that process. Or you know I, I often find that the, that the IP simply is assigned for the benefit of creditors, and you have specialist firms like uh, Sherwood Partners or Armenino or, or one of others many others that will go you know keep a, a database of, of assets that they hold uh, on behalf of, of creditors that are for sale and, and and buyers will be in touch with those brokers of, of um, insolvent assets to acquire uh, pieces of intellectual property that they need. Um, and so, you know, one, one example I'll give you is, um, you know, I, I had a client who had a business idea, uh, that, that might've involved, uh, repurposing some, uh, product, uh, to help, uh, turn those into ventilators and, and, um, uh, we we discovered through the process of mapping out the uh, the technology roadmap that we needed some licenses, and so we went to business brokers and and uh, found who had what we needed, and 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 took out a license. Uh, we didn't actually acquire the intellectual property; we just took a license to it, and 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 that was one way that that whoever had uh, bailed out on their business was able to monetize it even after. Um, you know they, the business had failed, so I, I expect to see a lot of restructuring transactions, a lot of assignments for the benefit of creditors and, and a lot of you know new and important ways for um, you know people to learn how to monetize intellectual property and structure technology acquisitions, and sales
0: now, I think that that 's a great role that uh, you provide there, Louie, you and your team is that people may be thinking that okay there 's only one way out and it's not going to be a favorable one unless we go ahead and liquidate you know, our personal assets. And I think they come and, come and meet with you. All of a sudden, all these options open up that they never knew existed. And the larger firms don't have the time to deal with those smaller things and probably don't focus on those options. They're too busy worrying, worrying about much larger needs for larger clients. So I think you meet a great need there. The other thing that's important is with that 20-page questionnaire, I mean, your objective when you're representing sellers is what? No surprises when, when they're negotiating with the buyer. You don't want buyers coming in here all of a sudden fu- asking the uncomfortable questions that turn up some some real big problem that could derail the deal. Um, from your experience, just solely with regard to intellectual property, what are some red flag things out there that buyer, you know buyers are going to be asking about that either your, your client's... Don't think about, or just aren't as prepared as they should be.
1: That's a great question, Patrick. And, and um, you know, on my long list of questions that I, I go through with a, with a seller that that I'm working with the first time is, you know, how did the intellectual property first come into the company, and and upon formation, did the founder assign? her or his intellectual property to the company. I, I'm, I'm always shocked to find the number of defective assignments of, of IP at Formation, and, and so that's an easy fix uh, as long as the founder that, that contributed that IP is still around. But if you have a co-founder that was really key to the development of the IP at Formation has departed and you have no leverage to get that person to sign an ass- assignment later on, that, that can be uh, sticky. Um, another red flag uh, is, you know, prior employment of the founders. And so, um, you know, if the founder worked uh, making bread at Acme Co uh, and, and was responsible for the designing of the baguette and and, and then suddenly starts a new company uh, and guess what, uh, baking bread and, and the designs are the same. Um, you know, that's, that's, that can be a big problem. So typically technology companies and, and, and any company, uh, when they hire an employee will ask them to sign, assign all of their intellectual property to the company, uh, that is their employer that, that they create during the, their, their duties, uh, during, during their nine to five job and, and that relates to their job. And so, um, I, 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 Always want to know from a founder what where what was their what was their prior job what were they doing and what paper did they sign. Um, another one is um, you know in the life of a startup you know it, it used to be that uh, you could exit a company in three to four years and, and today I think the average uh, time to exit for a company is more like ten years. Yeah, and, and so you know there's going to be a lot of people coming and going during that ten year period, and you've got to make sure that every employee from day one has signed. An assignment of invention agreement so that you you can put hand on heart and tell buyer that that when they acquire the company, that they've got all the IP without any claims from employees, that the IP is in fact theirs. So the famous example was when Cruise, uh, the uh, autonomous vehicle company, came out for sale to General Motors. uh, There was a a former co-founder that uh, uh, raised uh, his or her hand and said, Hey, you know, I'm actually a co-founder and I actually, you know, owned X percent of the company and, and the idea was mine and there was, there was no paper. And so, um, I, I believe there was a settlement and I don't know that the settlement was ever disclosed, but I'm sure that it, it was, uh, it was, uh, painful for, uh, the, the management team of, of crews upon sale to, to pay that out. Um, so that's that's another uh, red flag, you know. Another one is uh, that I find often are especially here in the Silicon Valley, or you know, we have a lot of uh, professors from Stanford or Berkeley or one of the other great universities uh, in a 50 mile radius of, of this um, technology hub that that spins out of their university to create a company or or even creates it in the lab, and you've you've really got to be careful at formation uh, that the intellectual property that's in the company actually belongs to the company and not the university. And, and oftentimes you'll, you'll see spectacular problems when, when universities uh, have claims to the IP. I see that a lot in life science companies, especially consultants and contractors, you know, just because you hired someone as a consultant doesn't mean that they, you don't have a, a similar risk of, of, of them claiming rights to ownership or intellectual property, or worse yet, that they were misclassified as a consultant, that they were in fact an employee. And so you want to make sure that your consultants and contractors are all papered. You know, all of this can be uh, remediated, Patrick, for the most part, it's, it, it, and fixed and cleaned up. And, and oftentimes, founders take shortcuts because they think it can all be cleaned up later. And th- while that's usually the case, sometimes the people that you need to clean it up, are, are uh, you don't have them at, at your disposal or, or they don't want to uh, uh, agree to the cleanup, and, and you end up having to pay them out. Finally, uh, I guess another area of, of red flag is, is joint ownership. And so, you know, whether it's founders that form an LLC uh, where they put the technology and then the technology from the LLC gets licensed to the company, or if it's uh, you've partnered with a a large company, uh, one of the big tech uh, Silicon Valley players, and and, and, uh, you've you've jointly uh, owned the property, um, how can you then sell it? So those are some of the, um, the big issues. I, I guess I'll just finish by saying you know that in today's day and age we see just a ton of enterprise uh, software companies coming to the market and you know they're they're essentially selling uh, a platform of software that's ri- written on a on a code stack and that code stack uh, needs to be analyzed once a year for open source uh, mm-hmm. code uh, open source code is code that's already been uh, developed and uh, the the, the um, Condition to using that open source is that if if the uh, if your code contains the open source uh, code, then you then have automatically granted a license to everyone in the community.
0: I I'll, I'll echo the the concern with the prior employer because I mean that's the, the running little uh, joke around Silicon Valley is we've got you know we're home to a number of very large search engines and um, social media platforms. And within those organizations are thousands and thousands of engineers working there that quietly have their own little pet project in their side drawer, just waiting for the day to go ahead and step on out and open up their own shop.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I could go on and on with red flags, Patrick, but uh, um, I, I hope that's a good, uh, a, good, a good introduction for your audience. And, yeah. and I'm all around to talk about uh, you know, specific uh, problems and ways to solve them.
0: Well, there, I mean, with, as you said, all these organizations are unique and so they all have their story to tell and they need someone like you that knows how to ask the right questions. Why don't you give me a profile of your ideal client?
1: Oh, well, that's a great question. And thank you. Um, you know, I, I've set out to target four um, areas in the market where again, I think there's a real disconnect. You know, the first is, is um, entrepreneurs, management teams, and investors uh, at formation and 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 as they go through the the life cycle and so um, you know sometimes uh, you you meet the lawyer that's right for you as you're exiting your your prior employment and you do it all right and sometimes you don't meet the right person until you've just closed the series B round and you just meet someone and you click so for me uh, the, you know the best introduction is at formation or as somebody's coming to market with uh, of financing for their company. So that's the first area. Um, the second area is, is when that entrepreneur or, or business comes to the market for sales, the so sell-side M&A. Um, and um, oftentimes, I'll get introduced by uh, their banker, I'll get introduced by one of their uh, investors or board members, or, or members of their executive team. And, you know, I really try and distinguish myself, um, you know, with a great network of relationships, you know, deep experience and, you know, a really personal approach that starts with that three-hour meeting going through the 20-page checklist to think of every possible issue that is leveraged for and against a, in a deal. You know, the, the other... Uh, times uh, or ideal clients um, for me are, are larger technology businesses that are looking to create uh, an acquisition machine. And so I, I help a number of uh, larger tech companies um, design forms, uh, design you know, term sheets that are you know, firm but fair and that are designed to help deals get done efficiently and, and mitigate risk. Um, and so that's a, a really fun uh, part of my practice. And, and then the last part of my practice is I, is I work with a lot of investors across the uh, the value chain from, you know, large growth equity investors uh, like the SoftBank Vision Fund or Riverwood Capital or, or, or others to, you know, real early stage investors, um, you know, that, that come in uh, with uh, a half a million dollar check. And I help them design, you know, an, an instrument that best reflects uh, their, uh, horizon for investment and harvesting and, and, uh, that gives them a set of rights that, uh, works for them. And so, uh, those are kind of the four areas that I'm targeting a- in my, in my new firm, uh, Patrick and, um, you know, I welcome new conversations with, uh, with, uh, with folks, uh, in those areas.
0: And, and this is, uh, regional where you're, you're doing this largely state of California. You know, my practice has,
1: has always uh, been what I call garage to global. And, and um, you know, I've, I've lived and worked in uh, Europe, uh, all over you know, the East and West Coast and in, in Asia. And, and so um, while, you know, most of my day-to-day uh, company side clients are here in the Bay Area, you know, I work with uh, investors and acquirers uh, all over the world.
0: You were good enough to uh, publish an article in CEO Magazine recently where you were putting out your predictions for M&A during COVID, and we were hoping a a month ago that we'd be in post-COVID right now, but we're still kind of bumping along. Uh, Why don't you share a couple of your predictions for M&A as as you see from your perspective?
1: Sure, sure. Um, I I think that um, there's a window of opportunity right now as... um technology buyers and and sellers have been kind of locked in place and sheltered, sheltering at home. And um, really, uh, I think there were a couple of months where not a lot of deals got done other than kind of finishing things that were in the pipeline. And even those deals that were in the pipeline, for the most part, got restructured with some sort of a 10 to 20 to 30 percent haircut on the pre-COVID valuation. I'm now seeing this Window of opportunity uh, blasting open as the economy reopens uh, has been reopening since I would say mid-May, and and I've I've been seeing uh, investors and buyers you know willing to you know look at new transactions, new investments, new acquisitions on a remote work-from-home basis. Um, you know, everybody's still responsible to their stakeholders for delivering growth and, uh, you know, COVID or no COVID, work-from-home or not, you know, if you want to, you know, capitalize on on your opportunity, you, you've got to make the best of your circumstances. And so, Um, I'm now seeing, you know, a really strong uptick uh, in uh, in M&A activity, both from strategic and financial buyers. I think that as valuations, uh, especially in the lower middle market, have fallen down by a good third, I'm seeing that private equity buyers are are really... Finding their appetite uh, to go and do deals, Patrick, because you know it's it's been a tough five years for for financial investors uh, and strategic ones as well to justify uh, paying the kinds of valuations that uh, private companies were demanding in the market uh, through the boom, and you know COVID's really an an opportunity for you know value based investors to get assets uh, at a fair price uh, or at a price that, that they can uh, justify to their limited partners.
0: Would you see uh, maybe initially more MA activity for add-ons where, I'm looking at private equity specifically, where rather than take a big jump on, on a, a new platform is maybe you already know what you have and maybe making smaller investments uh, on, on the add-ons or Go for the platform because you're going to save a lot more money now on those larger deals that are going to be cut by 30% than on an add on. I mean, just out of curiosity.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and I, I'll tell you that I've seen both. Um, and so I'm currently working on a new platform acquisition uh, that will be the platform for a technology vertical for a private equity firm. And, you know, they're very excited about it and excited about the valuation that they were able to obtain and, and really believe that, you know, this will allow them to further, you know, do those add-ons that you're talking about. And I'm working with uh, another private equity firm uh, on doing those little tuck-ins, uh, uh, ad- revenue add-ons, really, or, or product add-on features. And so I think both... Uh, platform and add on, on deals. We we should be able to see those happen uh, now through the end of the year. I predict a really big fourth quarter. Um, I I think people were thinking big third quarter and and maybe slower fourth quarter because of the election, but I I think that, you know, the economy is going to slowly reopen and we're going to play whack-a-mole with with all of these COVID spikes and and it's just going to build momentum. And and I think that, um, you know, the fourth quarter, hopefully it'll be a little bit more under control and, and, you know, people will really want to get their deals done before there's a a change in, in administration uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whoever wins, there'll be a change in administration and, and uh, um, you know, the, the associated risk of change of policies and change in market dynamics. And so I think the fourth quarter is going to be really big. And, and then finally, um, as I, we've, we've alluded to before, I think there are going to be a lot of technology businesses that, that just have to come to the market for sale uh, because they, they have to. And then there are going to be a bunch that uh, would have been for sale in the first half were it not for the pandemic. But so there's kind of the pent up supply that's going to come into the into the into the market on the second half, and then I think 2021 is going to be a big year for private equity sales. Um, I think I think uh, there's a big backlog, and and I think a lot of these technology companies have done really well through the pandemic, and they're going to look to sell at, at bigger multiples, and there are going to be a lot that have really struggled. Where people are going to give up and and bring those in at either restructure or or uh, bring them in at lower multiples. Finally, there's one thing we haven't talked about on this call, Patrick, which is the IPO market. And that's really been booming uh, last month, uh, totally unexpectedly. And, and um, I, I believe the second quarter of 2020 was the biggest quarter for issuances of equity in the history of the U.S. capital markets. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that really bodes well as capital is returned uh, to firms uh, and they're able to then, you know, <laughs> deploy new capital or raise new funds. So uh, the IPO market is a great uh, bellwether for uh, M&A as well.
0: Louis, how can our audience members reach you?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I have a, a website, which is my name, Louilo.com, and then my firm is l2council.com. Uh, and there are multiple ways of, uh, of finding me on those websites. Um, and and uh, Patrick, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak to your audience. And I, I shouldn't close before I thank you for um, being so innovative and, and having brought Rep and warranty insurance into the lower middle market as it's 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 a really a product that before I I met you was really reserved for sales of a hundred million dollars or more and the uh, the need for uh, rep and warranty insurance at all levels of the of the value chain is critical and especially in in the smaller. Uh, middle market deals where uh, it's so price sensitive and where an indemnification issue can be so dramatic. And so, um, you know, Patrick, uh, I, I look forward to continuing to work with you uh, as we navigate these uh, choppy markets.
0: Yeah, if I put together a list of, you know, the 10 reasons why I love, I'm um, an insurance nerd, but why I love MA. And I consider MA events the most exciting business event out there. Uh, it is is where dreams come true, legacies get made, and, and it's very exciting. Just being small contributor, but just being around it, it it's really giving me that surcharge to you know find my purpose and stuff. So, and it's it's great because now we're able to bring this this service, this product down to the innovators and the creators where they took uh, so there was nothing there. And from nothing, they created tremendous value. And to help them and reward them is, is just the least I could do. And, and it's working around people like you that, you know, like I said, you've worked with the Who's Who in Silicon Valley. So uh, it, it's been a great treat. So, Louis, thank you very much. And I look forward to talking to you again. Uh, folks, look for him. Look for him on LinkedIn. He's He's got a ton of fabulous content out there.
1: Thank you, Patrick. And, and uh, have a great weekend. You do the same.